morning and Happy New Year to everyone. Trust everyone had a good Christmas and is ready to jump in here. Yes, if you have children that are, I forget the ages, if you have children, they can be dismissed to Children's Church. <clears throat> We're going to jump right in this morning into the prodigal son, uh, uh, Luke chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to to jump into that. Luke chapter 15, we're going <clears> to <throat> begin in verse 11. Uh, I did change my scripture, not, I changed my scripture last minute this morning with you, but I'd, I'd been preparing the sermon since uh, later this week, so um, <clears throat> I just decided it wasn't uh, the passage of scripture that we were in. I wasn't prepared to preach, and, uh, and uh, uh, my heart wasn't ready for it, and so I just decided we would, we would jump into this passage of scripture. And so that's why we're in Luke chapter 15. Um, this is a passage of scripture that the Lord's been ministering to my heart over the last couple of months and has been just kind of working through some things and what I believe about Jesus, what I believe about the Lord and, and, uh, and how he looks at me and how I interact with him. And so I want to share that with you this morning. So Luke chapter 15 verses 11 through 32 is what we're going to focus on. It's the story of the prodigal son. Um, I trust that um, many of you are familiar with the passage. If you grew up in church, this is probably a, a familiar passage. If you did not grow up in church, uh, maybe this is a new story to you. Uh, but it's a fascinating, a fascinating story about, um, about really three characters. Um, it's about a father and about uh, uh, his two sons, uh, an older son and a younger son. Um, what we're going to discover today is that really each, each of the sons have lost their way. Um, that they uh, desperately need to find a home and find an embrace, uh, find that home in the embrace of, of their father. So we're going to take a look at these three characters this morning. So in verse 11, it says, And he said, meaning Jesus said um, to his listeners, there was a man who had two sons. So he's establishing right away, this is a three-character story. There's a man who had two sons. And he starts out talking about the younger son, uh, the younger brother. <clears throat> and he goes on to tell, tell us, his listeners, that the younger son is a rebellious son. It says that the younger, said, younger of, of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided the property between them. Now, Jesus' listeners at this time would have found this completely scandalous. Would have been completely scandalous. No one, if you talk to anyone who is in a uh, honor shame kind of society, even today, and you were to pose this story to them and ask them what should the father have done in this particular occasion, uh, it would have been uh, pretty drastic. Honoring the son's request would not have been what what happened in any culture. In fact, even in our culture today, this would have been a very shameful thing. What the son is telling the father is, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. And I want what's coming to me. I want uh, my inheritance, would have, which would have been one-third of the estate. The older brother would have taken two-thirds of the estate, and the younger brother would have had one-third of the estate. And so he tells the father, give me what's coming to me. And so the father divided the property. That too would have been scandalous for a father to have done that. The proper response would have been to slap him across the face. It would have been in that day. It would have uh, been to uh, ask him to leave the family and even potentially in the village have a funeral for his son. That should have been the response. This son of mine here who is asked of this such a scandalous thing 
Um, he is dead to me. He's dead to me. So the fact that the son asks is scandalous. The fact that the father relents and gives him the one-third of the property is scandalous. It says then in verse 13, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So he goes to a far-off country, which for us should symbolize that this far-off country is a place that's outside of his family. It's outside of the influence that his father would have had. It's outside the influence of uh, the faith that he would have grown up into. So this is a a godless place. This far-off country is a place that's well beyond what he has ever experienced before. It's a far-off place. There's a shameful request, shameful response, followed by a very shameful rebellion from the son who squanders everything that he has. It says in verse 4 then, and he, when he had spent everything, so you have to think here just for a moment, he had spent everything, a third of his father's estate that he has squandered. He would have had to have liquidated that estate. See, in, in those times, it would have been property, would have been the primary means of inheritance. And so the son would have had to liquidate property and animals and all those kinds of things. So the listeners of this story would have been like, this is ludicrous that this young man would have squandered all of this. All of this. And so when he's spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, they began to be in need. Of course he did, right? So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Now again, Jewish listeners, hearing that this young man is going into the fields to feed pigs would have been quite scandalous as well. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You see, when we break our attachment with God, we end up attached to something else. And that attachment will be slavery, not sonship. When we detach ourselves from God, we attach ourselves to something else. And that something else will always be slavery. It won't be sonship. Sin has brought the younger brother to a place of devastation. His first reaction, though, is not repentance. We need to see that first, because that's a natural tendency for all of us. When he's found himself in a devastating place, right, what's his, what's his first thought? His first thought isn't, well, I'll run back to my father and I'll repent of all that I've done. No, his first reaction is, I can fix this, right? And by fixing it, I'm just going to hire myself out to someone in this country so that I can, I can at least be fed, it says, but, in verse 17, but when he came to himself, when he, when he came awakened to the reality of where he was at, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? He thinks to himself, at least my father's hired servants have something to eat. They at least have bread, and I have nothing. I have nothing comes a time for every younger son, for every younger brother, when we realize we have no bread. Right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. 
we have to come to a realization that we have no bread. There is nothing that we have in ourselves. There's no way that we can fix it. There's no way that we can conjure something up. The fact is we have no bread and we can't get it for ourselves. It's impossible. And so the younger son comes to this realization, says, I have nothing. I have no bread. But I know where to get some. I know where to get it. This is a great start, right? To any sense of repentance that we may have is we come to that realization as we read about, as Jesus taught his disciples, I have no bread, but at least I know where to go to get it. I know where to run to get bread. And so he thinks to himself, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, so he's rehearsing this this speech over in his head. He may have rehearsed it all the way back to his father's house. He rehearses this in his head. He, He said, I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But this, this language that he's using, hired servants, that Jesus is using here, is worse than a slave. See, a slave is one that uh, serves the master, but is, um, lives there at the house and is, and is, uh, and is uh, working and has three squares a day, right? What he's saying here is, I, at least I can go to my father and I can hire myself out to him, meaning some days I'll work, some days I won't, but at least I'll have something, Right? So he's saying, it'll be worse than slavery, but at least it's better than the circumstances that I have. I'm I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's an important part for us to remember. In guilt and shame, he's looking for some kind of acceptance, not thinking that the father will ever accept him back into his family, he's, he has decided in his own mind that I, I know that at least if I grovel back to him, maybe he will just hire me occasionally so that I can eat. I believe we think and believe much like the younger brother uh, in our own hearts and minds. There are occasions when we do. Uh, when we too feel the weight of sin in our own life and guilt and shame. Sometimes we think that our sin is too bad for the Father to ever forgive. We think the things that we've done are just too insurmountable, like there's, there's no way that he's going to forgive those things, right? We say to ourselves, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, We also believe sometimes that our father is disappointed or mad at us, right? And that we can only receive forgiveness when we have done some kind of penance um, for the sins that we committed. We we sometimes believe this in our own hearts and minds, that if I can just work harder, if I can just do more, then I can somehow work myself out of this guilt and shame and the sin that I have that's in my heart and my mind. I can just do something, I can make this better. I can somehow fix this. If I just say the right words, if I just do the right things, if I can just, if I can just repent enough, right? Do more. And so we say to ourselves, treat me as one of your hired servants. We say that to God, like, God, just 
you know, erase the sin and I'm going to try extra hard not to sin anymore, right? I'm just going to do more. I'm going to be better. In fact, some of you even today may be sitting there thinking about your own hidden sin that you have and thinking, I don't want 2018 to be a, a year when that hidden sin in my own life rules me. I don't want that to be that way. And so you, you're already rehearsing in your mind the things that you're going to do so you don't do those sins anymore so that you can be better. So somehow God will accept you if you just work at it better. And we convince ourselves by thinking and believing like the younger son that we can't possibly be sons and daughters of the Most High King. There's no way that he can accept us for who we are right now. Some of you who are um, perhaps uh, not followers of Jesus, maybe that's been one of the things that's kind of hung you up from really following Jesus, is you think, well, I just can't be accepted. I've got the sin in my own life, and I, I've got to clean myself up. I've got to fix some things in my life before God will accept me. Something that we rehearse in our mind is really just not true. And so some of you are riddled with guilt. You feel shame, and you feel condemned. There's a sense of self-hatred that you may even have when you think about the sins in your own life, some of those hidden sins that you have. You, you think awful thoughts about yourself. You think that you're worthless or that there's something ugly about you. Some of you feel completely isolated and lonely because you feel so far away from the Father. You feel rejected. And the lie is that we continue to believe that these things are true about ourselves, that somehow we deserve this of ourselves. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, we hide ourselves because we are ashamed of who we are. We're ashamed of who we are. For some of you who have been Christ followers for some time, this may not be as uh, on the surface level. You, you have hidden your sin so well over years. You have, you've hidden those things deep in your heart and your mind that it it, it rears itself in ugly ways at times, but you've done a good job of trying to pacify it and to convince yourself. But in your minds, in your heart, you struggle with this. Almost every day you struggle with the sin. See, I feel most like the younger brother at certain times in my own life. I feel like the younger son when, I'm, um, when I've just blatantly sinned, right? I feel that when I've just done something that is egregious, things that I've thought in my own mind that are sinful, things in my heart, things that I've said. When I've just blatantly sinned, I, I feel that weight of shame come upon me. It's not conviction, it's just this shame that I convince myself that somehow God just is unhappy with me, that he's disappointed in me, that he can't accept me, that I can't be one of his sons. Some of you are wrestling with that exact thing. When you blatantly sin, when, when you know that, that that sin in your own heart, in your own mind, the things that come out of your mouth, you know that are just sinful and rebellious. And you struggle with that, and you feel like you are in a far-off country. I feel like the younger son, and I, I don't want you to laugh, Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to be honest with you here this morning. I feel like the younger son many times when, um, when I watch too much TV. Can I just tell you that? Um, 
because I've, I've wrestled most of my life with having a good devotional life, right? I mean, I know all the great, you know, Christians of history have gotten up at 5 a.m. in the morning and read their Bibles and do all those kind of things, and, and I just struggled to get up in the morning to pray and to read my Bible. Why? Because I stay up way too late watching TV, numbing myself to, you know, life and, and uh, just enjoying and watching nothing, Right? I'm not talking about bad things. I'm just talking about just nothingness. I can watch any movie. It doesn't matter how bad it is. I can watch just about anything. My kids look at me and like, how can you watch that movie? I'm like, I don't know. It's dumb, but I got to watch it to the end, right? <laughs> I just have to. But let me be honest with you. When I watch too much TV, I feel a sense of guilt. Maybe there's something in your life that you just, you feel that, that just makes you feel guilty and shameful. Watching too, too much TV has been that. When I compare it with my, um, how much time I spend in the Word. Like, it's just shameful, right? And, and when I watch too much TV, then I feel this wave of guilt and shame come upon me and feel like you are just an idiot. You are worthless. Like, why would God want to talk to you after you've just wasted so much time watching TV? I told my spiritual mentor a few weeks back about that. And uh, he asked me what I believe God thinks about me when I watch too much TV. And my answer was, I think he feels disappointed in me. I feel like God feels disappointed in me. And so because of that, I feel shame and guilt. It's the younger brother part of me. It's the younger son in my life condemning me, feeling me. We're going to come back to that. I'm going to tell you what my spiritual mentor told me to do. So that's a younger brother. Some of you are struggling with it. Even this morning, you feel the younger brother <laughs> rising up in you. And, uh, and you're struggling thinking through. There's another character that um, Jesus talks about in this story, and that's the older brother. Now, in the, the listeners at this point are thinking this younger brother is the most horrible younger son, younger brother that they've ever heard of. Like, this would have been so scandalous, and what the father has done has been scandalous. The only bright spot in the story is that the listeners are going, well, at least there's the older brother, right? At least there's one good one, right? Now, his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house, and he heard the music and dancing, and called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. See, the older son really should have been a much bigger part of the story from the very beginning. The older son really had two responsibilities. Uh, the first one would have been to have, in the midst of this dispute at the, at the beginning of the story between the father and the younger son, it would have been the job of the older son to step in. He should have, in the story, should have said, hey, listen, uh, uh, to the younger brother, like, you are, you are completely out of line. Like, you should not be doing this. And she, he should have been the negotiator between these two parties. It's this first thing. And so he should have been the one that should have 
pointed out the, the wrong in his younger brother and told the father, don't do that. Like, that is not your place. We should, we should be um, <laughs> having a funeral for, your, for this younger brother of mine, right? He, sh- he should have been the one that, that would have raised all the red flags. That was his first responsibility, and he didn't fulfill it. The second responsibility that the older brother would have had in this time would have been go after the younger brother. Would have been his responsibility to chase after him and, and, to, and to ask him to come back and say, you need to repent. Like what you've done is sinful and wrong and rebellious. You need to come back to our family. You need to repent. You need to pay back every dime that you've taken from our estate. And he did neither one of those responsibilities. What was the reason for his anger? It tells us there in verse 28. It says, but he was angry and refused to go in. Now, we have a response here, right? But the biggest response that we need to see is actually in verse 27. It's that because his father has received him back. That was his giant grievance here. Is that the father has done something so scandalous and let the younger son run off and spend everything, but now he has come back and the father has received him back. That's cause for his anger. But he goes on and says, Look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. This son of yours. I won't even call him his brother. He's so, so angry. So angry. This son of yours. Even the way he addresses his father, he tells him, look. Imagine telling your father that. Walking up to your father and say, look, mister. Right? There's no title. There's no respect. He said, for many years I've been serving you. This word serving, doulos, It means I have for many years been your slave. I've been your slave for so many years. Look here, mister. I've been your slave for many years, and you've done nothing for me. There's a legalistic mentality, isn't there? He goes on, he says, I have never neglected a command of yours. I've never disobeyed your command. (laughs) Wow. Wow. If this isn't the language of a self-righteous hypocrite, I don't know what is. He sounds a bit like the rich young ruler. I've done everything perfectly. I've done everything. I've slaved for you. There's no love for the father. There's only duty. He has disdain for any grace or forgiveness. There's no love for the younger brother. Just judgment. Here's what we need to hear today. This older brother is just as lost as his younger brother. He's just as lost. How are we like this? Well, we, get, we have these moments of self-righteousness, right? Believing that our acceptance is based on our own righteousness. It's based on duty, and what we performed. We're prideful. We're blind to our own sin, but we're really anxious to point out sin in other people's lives. We confuse godliness with morality. We may be addicted to works. 
because somehow we think that by working harder and doing more that we're more acceptable and that we've somehow earned our righteousness because of it. Our older brother nature is good at hiding sin. I mean, we've gotten incredibly good at hiding sin and masking it with hypocrisy. The older you are in age, the easier it is to hide yourself in hypocrisy. The older you are in age, the easier it is to hide yourself, to push the hidden sin down deep inside of you. We would think it would be the opposite, right? We would think it would be like, I'm older and so now I have more experience and I've seen the faithfulness of God. No, it really is the exact opposite. We just get better at hiding ourselves and presenting a false self to the world. People may think that you are perfect and look good as a clean, wholesome, perfect Christian. But you know the reality is that it is just a facade. That your sin is just as part of you as it ever has been. It's in living in the reality and being honest with ourselves that we can see this facade begin to fade away. Jesus has strong words for older brothers. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and are all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These words are for followers of God. They are not for runaway younger brothers. These are for religious folks who have been living their lives according to the law, been living their lives morally for a long, long time. I feel like the older brother, like the older son, um, in a couple of different ways. Uh, one is when I'm around my extended family. I just had a great taste of it over Christmas, right? <laughs> right? I see the older son come out of me much easier when I'm around my extended family. I don't plan to act that way. I don't. Um, it just kind of comes out. It's this self-righteousness um, that kind of rears its ugly head in my life. I can say incredibly condescending things to them. I act like their sin is much larger than mine. I find fault in almost everything that they do. I rationalize it by thinking, well, I've been a believer for a long time, and they're still struggling in their petty sin. And so instead of joining in and Having fun with them, I distance myself and I become condescending and standoffish. Holidays can be a difficult time for an older brother like me. It's a constant battle in my heart. Many times I leave my family and I just feel like a fraud and a hypocrite. 
The second way I feel like an older brother is um, uh, my people-pleasing tendencies. You don't know me very well, and so it's, uh, you may not know this about me, but I like to be liked. Some of us do. Some of us don't care, but I do. I like to be liked a lot. And in certain situations, I will find creative ways in order to make myself feel more important than I really am. Ask me what I do for a living. It will be a struggle for me to give you uh, an accurate answer. Because my heart and my mind are always trying to find ways of making it sound more important than it really is. It's that older brother that just raises in me. That may not be um, the older brother tendencies you have, but let me guarantee you, you have them. You have them in your old life. There are parts of hypocrisy. There are things that you create in your own mind, in your own heart, that uh, the older brother just gets raised up in you. The hardest conversion to go through is a conversion for the one that's at home. It's the one that stayed home. So I know some of you who have been following Jesus for a long time, the hardest transition, the real heart change for you is going to be um, a conversion from being an older brother um, to being um, the son of the father. It's going to be a hard transition for you. Because you've been playing the part for so long. You've been doing all the right things. And you just know that that older brother in you, those tendencies in you just keep rising and dragging you down. See, there's a constant battle of thinking and believing like either the younger or the older brother. We either believe that our sin is too bad and that we are too broken for the Father to accept us, or we're too prideful and base our acceptance on our own righteousness. Both are lost. Both are without a home. Both are desperately in need of the embrace of the Father. Both. Let me just tell you, you are not one or the other. You're not one or the other. You are both. You are the younger brother, and you are the older brother. They both live inside of you. And depending on the day, depending on the circumstance, one of those will rise in your heart and mind. It's the, it's the enemy that does that to you. It's the world, it's the enemy, it's Satan himself that has this battle in your heart and mind that you will constantly struggle with your entire life. There's tendencies that you have. And so you will battle. So what do we do? What do we know when we know that this younger brother and this older brother within us will rise at certain situations and Satan will use those attitudes and heart in our mind to battle against one another, against us through our flesh? Well, we need to hear the response of the father, don't we? So let's hear the response to the younger brother first. What does the father say to him? We read this in verse 20. He said, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his finger and the shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. The expectation should have been, right, from the listeners of this story, would expect the father to be angry and ashamed and dishonored. They would expect him to be furious with his son. They would expect him again to slap him across the face and rebuke him, to shame him, to punish him, to dismiss him from the family. But the father not only takes back the son, but he gives him full privileges. Bring the best robe, put a ring on his hand, sandaled on his feet. What's the robe? The robe is honor. This is the most important garment in the fam- in the family that the family owned by the father. This would have been a garment that the father owned. It may have been passed down from generations. This is the most important garment that they own. Been, would have been worn by the father at the most prestigious events of the family ever conducted or engaged in. In fact, one commentator said that this robe would have been a robe that the eldest brother would have worn at his wedding. Give him all the family honor that is possible to give him. That's what the father does. Then take the signet ring, which he used to stamp official documents, which gives you full freedom to act and authority to act on behalf of the family with all the family resources. Gives him full authority. And then put some shoes on his feet. Servants are barefoot. Hired people are barefoot. But masters and rulers and sons, they all wear shoes. Give him full sonship. Give him full power of that sonship, full authority, full honor. There's no waiting period here. There's no test period. There's no re-entry time. There's no limit on the privileges. This is full-blown sonship at the highest level. This is a picture of salvation. When the sinner comes bankrupt with absolutely nothing, casts himself on the Father's mercy and says, I have wasted everything. My sin is as high as heaven. I have sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I can offer nothing. I will work. I will do whatever it takes. Then the Father embraces him in love and says, You don't need to work. I give you full sonship with all the rights and privileges, all the honors and authority. That's salvation. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair, right? That sounds crazy. Like, the listeners of this would have thought this was scandalous. Like, why would the Father do that? This is just too good to be true, right? Well, then you understand salvation. You understand understand the gospel, It is too good to be true. A sinner who is in a far-off country, someone is so rebellious and then comes back, the father does not even ask him one question. Doesn't ask him one question. Doesn't say, where have you been? What have you been doing? What would you do with all the money? Not one question. He puts a robe on him. He gives him a signet ring, puts shoes on his feet, gives him the highest honor, and then throws a party for him. That's salvation. I told my spiritual mentor that I felt guilty watching so much TV. You know what he told me to do? Any guesses? He told me, 
This next week, I want you to watch as much TV as you want. Oh, <laughs> I pause. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> watch as much TV as you want. And he says, and while you watch TV, I want you to think this. He says, I want you to think about this verse. The Lord will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and will rejoice over you with singing. He says, while you watch TV, I want you to think the Lord delights in you. I, I, I just laughed, right? I just laughed probably for a minute. I'm just like, are you serious? Like, why would you tell me to do that? That seems so ridiculous. To watch as much TV as I want and to think that the Lord delights in me while I watch TV. Do you understand what he was trying to tell me? Do you understand what he was trying to communicate to me? That my watching TV or not watching TV has nothing to do with my sonship. Nothing. The the Lord delights over me regardless. Not because of my own righteousness, because of his son's righteousness. So when he looks at me, he sees Jesus. And in that, he delights in me. See, our younger brother tendency is to think that God is so ashamed of us and can't see. And what we need to picture is God running towards us and embracing us and us finding a home in that. Stop living in the shame and the guilt. The Father delights in you. We need to hear that, younger sons. We need to hear that. But he also gives a response to the older brother. His father came out and entreated him. What does that mean, entreated? What it means is that he came alongside. The father should have stood above him, right? Should have stood above him and condemned him. Should have, and, and should have pointed, you know, should have you know, slapped him across the face is what he should have. When, when, the, when the older son says, look, you, the father had every right to slap him across the face. But instead, the father comes alongside him as though he's an equal. That's what he says and treated him. I mean, he's, he's standing beside him and looking into the party as an equal. And he pleads with him. And he calls him to come to the kingdom, to come into this house, to come to the celebration. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive, and was lost, and is found. He says, my child. He, he, he entreats him and says, uh, my child. See, they use a different uh, word here for the rest of this passage eight times. It's just a more formal word, son, until he gets to this point, and where he uses this other term, um, which is my child, my boy. It's speaking in grieving, painful agonizing, compassionate love and mercy. He speaks to him in enduring terms, and that's the heart of God towards a hypocrite. All that is mine is yours. God is saying right here, Christ is saying, I go out into the street to the prodigal, 
and I go out to the courtyard for you. I humble myself and take on public shame for the prodigal. I humble myself and take on public shame for you. I come with compassion and love and forgiveness, and I'm ready to embrace you and to kiss you and to give you full sonship with all his privileges, not just if you're the prodigal, but even if you're the hypocrite. He's really inviting him to salvation. You can come to the party if you choose, if you recognize your true spiritual condition, that you are lost, that you too are lost. The younger son went to a far-off country. The older son, he's not home either. He's out in the field. And that's his spiritual condition. He's out working, trying to prove himself. you come home, you can take possession of everything that's always been there. Always been there for you. Here's the truth we need to hear today. Our Father waits for us in our rebellion. Not stewing in anger, but anxiously and eagerly awaiting us. He's waiting for us in our rebellion, whether or not we're the younger son or the older brother and at whatever moment we may be Either one of those. Our Father runs to us in our return to Him. When we repent and say, God, I have no bread. There's nothing that I have. He is not a reluctant God. He is not sitting around, stewing and waiting for us. He's running towards us when we are repentant and we come to Him. He runs to us at our return. Our Father responds with complete forgiveness and reconciliation out of His great love for us. And our Father shamelessly throws a robe of sonship on us. Shamelessly throws a robe of sonship. Even though we don't deserve it, we have been in rebellion and abandoned him. He celebrates and declares, all I have is yours. Everything is yours. He does those things for us as a rebellious younger son and the hypocritic older brother. Henry Nouwen writes, both needed healing and forgiveness. Both needed to come home. Both needed the embrace of a forgiving father. Let's pray together.